0: can be seated, and if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 13. Today we're going to begin talking, today we're going to talk about uh, a particular kind of enemy of the gospel. And before we do that, I've had this psalm on my heart all week to read. I don't know quite why I should read this, except perhaps that as we talk about uh, the enemies of the gospel, we need to have the the appropriate attitude, and that appropriate attitude is is... At least partly, a kind of divinely inspired confidence, uh, or we could other we could say another way. There really shouldn't be any presence of fear when we talk about the Lord's enemies, enemies of the gospel. For we will see over and over again that they will not succeed. And so, I just want to read Psalm two to you, which is a psalm of, in uh, in a, a many sense, a psalm of uh, Charlie Chaplin, Three Stooges esque picture. Of, uh, of, of what rebellion really looks like. You know, it's, it's, it's this incompetence that looks from the earthly perspective to be ferocious and, and existential. Like, oh no, the kings of the earth are, are setting together to, to, to overthrow the Lord. But the Lord views this like we would watch the Three Stooges trying to paint a house. You know, and, uh, and, and the Bible says in Psalm 2 that the Lord laughs. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Verse 4 says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, "As for me. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So now we turn to our text in Acts chapter 13. And what we're going to see today is a particular type of archetype of, of an enemy of the gospel. And that archetype is what I'm referring to as a sorcerer. And so the title of the sermon today is How to Spot a Sorcerer. It's sort of a Where's Waldo for the enemies of the gospel. It's like a, where's Waldo for heretics? You know, how to, spot, how to spot the sorcerer in the story. And we will see throughout the scriptures, time and time again, that there are this particular archetype, this particular kind of enemy that we would refer to as a wise man, a false prophet, or a sorcerer. This won't be the first time when we turn into Acts 13. This won't be the first time we've encountered one of these guys. We were in Acts eight, and we, we we came across a guy named Simon the sorcerer. He, it, spotting him was easy because it was in his name, you know, uh, Simon. They don't all do that, unfortunately. Uh, Hi, I'm Phil, the false prophet. Uh, are you a false prophet? Because uh, it says so in your name. No, uh, but the first time we encountered this in our study through Acts was Simon the sorcerer, and then today we'll see this man named Elimus or Bar Jesus. When we get to Acts 19, sometime in 2025, we'll see the sons of Siva as another group of false prophets. And so this sort of enemy is actually pretty present throughout the scriptures. In fact, I would argue that it's really this manifestation of a a sorcerer, of a purveyor of hidden knowledge, of a soothsayer, if you will. It's really that manifestation I think most describes the serpent in the garden in Genesis 3. So this is a common uh, archetype, a common kind of enemy of the gospel. Uh, I want to read 2 Timothy one three to you, real quickly, because I want you to see that throughout the New Testament, this particular kind of person that we'll continue to describe as we progress through the message, this particular kind of person is just like something we're going to have to deal with. This is just going to be part of what it means to be a Christian. You're going to have to you're going to have to smite a sorcerer every once in a while. That's just the way it is. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 1, Paul says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. Now who were Jonas and Jambres? Or in Spanish, Janus and Jambres. Who, 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 were these, who were these fellas? Well, those are the traditional names for the magicians that served in Pharaoh's court, who kind of matched Aaron's signs. If you remember that story, there were they this is these are the traditional ancient names, so Timothy would have known who these people were oh those are the those are the the, the the magicians in Pharaoh's court. so again, this sorcerer this uh the soothsayer, this wise man, this false prophet, this is just a type of thing uh Christians are going to have to deal with as they progress uh, to being more like Jesus as they walk in the gospel together. This is just a kind of person that you're going to have to have to Figure out. Um, their essential goal, as we'll see in our text, is to turn people away from what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians as a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's the basic goal. To turn people away from a simple, straightforward, sincere, and pure devotion to Christ. So now let's look at our text, uh, Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus, and when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a false prophet, a Jewish false prophet, named Bar-Jesus. He was the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the pro away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, midst and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This idea that this pro this this proconsul Sergius Paulus is interested enough in the faith. I think he's interested in pretty much everything. That could be dangerous, but uh, he's interested enough in the faith to to ask. Paul and Barnabas to come and share the gospel with him, and so they go to do that, but there's a, a, a guy that's been secured, the, the inference is a guy that's basically been hired to be a counselor or a wise man in the court of this proconsul, and that's this guy named Jesus, Elimus, and he's sort of a paid, uh, he's sort of a paid wise man, sort of the, you know, you know, like like how Oprah has like a guru, like it's that kind of deal, you know, like he's kind of He's kind of the guru of the court, you know, and a lot of king types had these sorts of people because knowledge is power, and they were always looking for an edge. And Roman leaders, in particular, were always very interested in hiring Jews because Jews had this this weird, like, uh, ancient connection to mystic things, and so on and so forth. That's how they viewed them. And so uh, Elimus had this job. He was essentially, uh, he was essentially the the wise man, the the soothsayer of of this this guy named Sergius Paulus. And of course, this idea that Paul and Barnabas would come and share a gospel, which doesn't include uh, any full-time soothsayers, uh, threatens this man. It threatens his job. It threatens his livelihood. It's incredible, actually, when you study all of the incidents of false teaching in the New Testament, how many times uh, these soothsayers or just these false prophets are motivated by money. It's actually incredible to think about how many times Paul was beaten or opposed in some violent way simply because someone wanted to protect their paycheck. It really brought new, uh, fresh life to me to when Paul says in Timothy that, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It really made me realize that Paul could look down on his body and see scars you know, that, that had happened because someone was afraid of losing their paycheck. Isn't that crazy? That's just, that's just crazy. Uh, But anyway, so that's kind of the motivation. That's usually the motivation. And we're going to look at a number of these kind of passages, these false prophet passages today. And man, over and over again, you'll see something like the love of gain or the shameful love of money or something like that. And so that's why this contest is happening. Uh, Paul is is eager to give away the gospel uh, for nothing, right? No position or title does he seek. He's happy to give away the gospel uh, because that's how the gospel was given to him. But there's this other way, and that is sort of the, uh, the soothsayer, the sorcerer, who, who finds their way into power through their use of uh, secret information or, or esoteric wisdom or whatever. And so that's the competition. So how do we... By the way, these people, these people are effective. There are plenty of people who used to walk with Christ, who don't walk with Christ anymore because they read a book by someone like uh, that, that That happens. It, it happens today. It will continue to happen. These are really dangerous people. So how does God protect his people from these sorcerers? First of all, let's just be clear, he does. He just will. God protects his people from all sorts of things. And here's the deal. As I studied all of this, I realized, oh, I have a sorcerer in me. Like, you have a sorcerer in you. You have some voice in you that wants to pull you away from Jesus and make things more complicated than they are, to give you an excuse for sinning, or to give you a reason not to trust in the simple and straightforward gospel handed once and for all. So the truth is, is that God's protecting you right now from you, and he'll protect you from the, uh, the you's outside of you, uh, as it were. So let's talk about how God does that. First first of all, boy, God has filled his Bible with the playbook of this kind of person. You know, as soon as sin enters the world in Genesis 3, 1 through, let's say, 6, uh, God starts recording the plays of the enemy. And the interesting thing is, we'll see in our text here, that Paul says in verse 9, you know, you son of the devil... And that's the really interesting thing about all this is, is that there really is a finite number of plays that these sort of folks run. So it says in verse 9, Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Uh, he knew exactly who this guy was. He knew exactly where this guy came from. He knew exactly what this guy was going to do and what he was about. And that's because God has given us a, a huge data set of information about the way that these particular people play their game. I don't know if we have any massive, massive football fans in our church. Um, I know we have a lot of Chiefs fans in our, in our church. But there are, there are certain people that, if you meet them, that are such football fans that, that literally you could hand them a playbook. They could read the plays in the playbook and tell you, oh, this is, this is the Green Bay Packers playbook. Or this is the so-and-so. We, we have, there, there are football fans who you could actually black out the players on the screen just so you're showing these black dots moving around. And they could just watch the plays taking place and say, oh, that's, that's the Patriots. That's, how the, that's, that's a play the Patriots run, so on and so forth. Well, God has actually given us in his word the playbook of the enemy. So when Paul looks at this guy, he's like, well, I know who you are. I, I know exactly who you are. I, I've read your playbook. God gave me your playbook. He's, he's faithfully recorded in His Word over and over again instances of people like you, so I know exactly who you are. There's this story of a, of a really old heretic, he, ancient. Uh, he was very successful financially, and he bought himself a lot of favor and clout in the early, early church. And uh, his name was Marcion, and he was kind of a bully. Polycarp uh, was actually a disciple of John the Apostle. So that's how old I'm talking about. And, and Polycarp uh, is an old, old man at this time, a faithful man. And he's kind of, I think they're at some kind of a church uh, council type deal. And uh, he's, you know, Polycarp's over here, old, old dude. Marcion kind of bull rushes him and goes right up to him. And, and you know, young and, and, and wealthy and well-known. And he says to Polycarp, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? And Polycarp, feeble, old, faithful saint, says, I know who you are. You're the firstborn son of the devil. And walked on. Slowly, as he's old. So God is actually, the Bible says that God has given us everything we need through his great and precious promises for life and godliness. And one of the things he's given us is he's given us the enemy's playbook. So we can actually know this is what a sorcerer Looks like. So I'm going to just very quickly walk through some of the sort of tenets of, you know, the the attributes of what a sorcerer looks like. (coughs) Excuse me. Angela and I both had a cold this week. I had a man cold, so, you know, it was worse. But uh, I hope I'm not coughing a lot during the message. Uh, The playbook begins in Genesis 3. And I want you to just know this passage. I want this passage to be one of those that's maybe not memorized, but really kind of familiar, so that it just kind of pops up when you start filtering out, when you're looking at, is this person a sorcerer? Is this person trying to pull me or someone else away from the faith? Genesis 3 is the start of the playbook. Genesis 3.1 Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I won't paint, I won't, I won't go into detail here, but the basic playbook that the Simons and the Elymises and the Sivas and the, the, the Yans and the Yambres run is to pull someone away from a simple trust that God meant what he said. Right? I mean, that's, that's pretty much it. A simple trust that God meant what he said. And it starts here at the beginning. And I just want to list a, a few of the, the common attributes that we'll see in all of these texts and stories. And the first one is deception. You can't expect any kind of honesty from a sorcerer type. One of the, the, Two of the attributes that, that Paul ascribes to Elymas is uh, deceitful and villainous. And I thought, well, what does that word villainous mean in the Greek? And it means no bounds. It means like, like no, no limits, no, no integrity, no categories. He doesn't have to play by any rules at all. Just do whatever he wants to persuade. And so, one of the attributes of the sorcerer type is that they're just deceitful. Um, they, they don't ever walk in and say, "Hey, by the way, hey, I'm 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 Elymas and I've devised a new gospel to give me power over you." Um, it's not on their name tag. Second Corinthians or 2 Timothy three says that they creep. They creep into households. <coughs> Later, Jude describes them as hidden reefs. By the way, if you just want like a 20-minute review of this sermon, sometime this week, just read the book of Jude. It's a it's this, it's this very small book. Be very quick for you. But the third verse of Jude is, is I, I'm writing to commend you, to, to exhort you, to contend earnestly for the faith delivered once and for all for the saints. It's, it's, it's about all of this. In Jude, uh, these sorcerer types are described as hidden reefs who have crept in unnoticed. So they're good, at, they're good at not being noticed. They're good at consolidating power without drawing a great deal of attention to themselves. Or if they do draw attention to themselves, it usually looks pretty good. In 2 Timothy 3, it also says that they are imposters. So they're, they're, they look like the real deal. They look like a Christian and then it says that they have the appearance of godliness. Right. So the first thing to just remember is, is that these folks are deceptive. There are no rules. They, don't, they, they can do whatever they need to do. They're shapeshifters. They can say what they need to say on Monday and then change it to Wednesday and so on and so forth. And there's literally no accountability for, for, for staying true to what they said in the past or anything like that. Uh, LMS in our text, is described as a false prophet. But to the average person, who knows the difference, right? Prophet's a prophet. Like, that's the whole deal with false prophets. You just, if you don't know, if you're not spiritually discerning and sophisticated, it's like, well, that guy's a prophet. His name is literally Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus, or son of salvation. So This is that first attribute I want you to be mindful of, is, is that these are deceitful people who shapeshift and know how to present themselves in a particular way. And I want to open your eyes to a particular blind spot that we deal with, and that is, you know, it's, it's one thing to successfully fool people that you actually do life with, who see you when you're tired or hungry, or when you're afraid, or, 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 or when, you, when, when, you're feeling, when you have hurt feelings. It's, it's one thing to, like... like like successfully fool people when they actually see you over a period of years in a bunch of different environments. I'm not saying it can't be done. It's just it's, it's it's somewhat difficult. But let's be clear about something: doing life with someone means that seeing them and all the ups and downs and so on and so forth. Social media is not doing life with someone. What what social media is is playing life in front of someone. And, and the key thing i don 't want to be overly negative about it, but I just want you to understand the key thing going on there is is that you are seeing what they want you to see right and it 's the same with a book or it 's the same with with uh, you know a, a web series or a blog series or something like that you you're not able to see past the appearance of godliness because you 're just getting you're getting the photo that they post for, right? You're getting, you're getting the image they want you to see. So it's actually, I think, more, it's easier today to be led astray by these sort of chameleons because you don't actually see what life is like for them just kind of normally. You only get their highly curated, edited version. Uh, the second attribute I want to draw our attention to is flattery. Proverbs 27.6 says, Profuses are the ki- profuse are the kisses of the enemy, but faithful are the wounds of a friend. From the very beginning, the original serpent sorcerer played to the vanity of human potential. And this is a this is a very there's a lot wrapped up in that sentence. The vanity of human potential. This is if I had to name one area of flattery that is most common. It's this—the vanity of human potential. If you figured this out, you could be X, Y, and Z. If you threw off this cast, you could be X, Y, and Z. We're kind of, uh, you know, going through this over and over again. Where if you really peered through the memes, especially those that are pastel—you know, the ones on Pinterest—what's uh, really saying, what's really being said there is, is that there is so much good in you. You just need to get rid of all the toxic whatever. And then the human potential, the potential you have, can be unleashed. And this is, of course, exactly how the serpent speaks to Eve. It says, if you ate this, you will be like God. So there's a, there's a, a flattery. There's, a, there's always a flattery, a kind of you have what it takes. You are better than they're saying you are. You are, you are wiser than you know. Trust your heart, so on and so forth. But this has been, all throughout the playbook, this has been a consistent mark of a false prophet. This idea of flattery. In Jeremiah 6.13, well, a couple places in Jeremiah, but in Jeremiah six thirteen fourteen 14 it says, From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace when there is no peace. In Romans sixteen seventeen through 18, Paul says, I appeal to you brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. I just pause and say, just from a very selfish perspective, Perspective, if you're married, we're at that year. Angela and I have been married 26 years. We're at that milestone where now we see that sort of you see the seven year divorces and then you see the empty nest divorces. Right? Like that's this is these are the two big chunk. Um, If you'd like to like stay married for your whole life, you need to know about these people because then the number one assault, practically, human, humanly horizontally that these people do beyond your actual faith is they will they will turn you against your spouse. But that, this is this is this is where this is happening in real time right now. This is where the sorcerers are at work besides turning people away from the faith, they are turning lovers against each other. They are turning spouses against each other. And it is often, often, by finding the one who is the most um, vulnerable to flattery and, and flattering potential of what their life could be like if so-and-so was better, different, or not in their lives altogether. So flattery is a huge deal. There's an old Puritan named uh, Henry Hurst, and he wrote a sermon on flattery, and he just describes it this way. He says, we are vulnerable to flattery because we have an immoderate desire, an immoderate desire that our best and worst might be represented in fairer colors than those that are native. An immoderate desire that our best and worst might be represented in fairer colors than those that are native. This is just Instagram filters for our, our character. Like that's what we, that's, we all have this. We all want that. We want people to make our negatives seem less negative than they really are and to make our positives seem more positive than they really are. And if you are prone to this, if you are vulnerable to this, you are vulnerable to the sorcerer types. Uh, In 2 Timothy 4, uh, I charge you, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Now listen to this. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That's where where flattery leads. That's where an appetite for flattery leads. It leads to finding people who will tell you what you want to hear. And you actually go out and you search for your own catalog of teachers who will tell you what you want to hear. Uh, number three, kind of attribute, is an appeal to intellectual pride, which is similar to flattery. Sorcerer types always peddle in hidden or esoteric knowledge. Right? They they always say, "I've got some information that can set you free." So so sorcerers will engage in a kind of intellectual flattery. You you've heard of the red pill blue pill thing? That's intellectual flattery, because. Rooted in it is this implication that only some of us are brave enough to handle the truth. It's, it's a means of seducing you. It's a rhetorical tool. It's a means of seducing you into thinking that you're of the special set that can handle the deeper truth. This is, this is, it, it, it works to great effect because we are all eager, as Eve was in the garden, to what? Be like God and know and, and discern at a level beyond what we currently do today. Friends, intellectual pride has had a massive a, a massive imprint on 2020 and 2021. Uh, conspiracy theories are a piece of intellectual pride. Uh, and so, so, by the way, one of those conspiracy theories is called QAnon, and another one is called critical race theory. And they're both vanities poured into different vessels— and they're both conspiracy theories. They're, 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 both just, they're both literally appealing to this intellectual pride we have that says, I want to have the inside, inside information. Friends, I've seen so many people this year judging their brothers and sisters in Christ for being yodels, for being low information, for not knowing enough on both sides of the COVID issue. We are, we are highly subject to division we are highly subject to the sorcerers when we are identifying ourselves, when we take pride in being informed. Like that's, that's just, be informed. By all means, be informed. But, the, but if you could just get an x-ray of your heart right now and see, I think you would be surprised how often, or how many of us have, at least at some level, a certain amount of pride that we are not like so-and-so we're not like the Fox Newsers, or we're not like the MSNBCers, or the the certain amount of pride, that's where the sorcerer goes, gets his hooks in, and starts to pull you away from a sincere... You become defined in many respects at this point, not by Jesus, but by who you're not trying to be like. And most of us here either were... Uh, 18, or will be, and many of us knew, know what this is like. When, when you go through this moment where you decide, I don't want to be like my dad, or I don't want to be like this person, or I don't want to be defined by this thing, it's like, that is not an actual way to live. And it's actually a way to live that leads us into being seduced into deep error. You know, in 2 Corinthians 11 Paul is dealing with a church. Just so you could, you could just wrap up the Corinthian church this way. This is a church deceived by intellectual pride. And in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, he says, I wish you could bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Why? Why would they put up with it readily enough? Well, guys, once you get this sort of this, this fantasy identity of being an open-minded individual, be open-minded, by the way. I, I, I love to learn. But once that becomes my identity, once I start being the guy who's like, I'm open to any new ideas, that's, that's who I am. Someone brings me another Jesus, and in order to keep with this identity that I have crafted for myself, I have to listen to him instead of telling him to get out. I want nothing to do with you. Because I've crafted for myself an identity that says I'm open-minded. I'm not like all those closed-minded fundamentalist yokos out there. Like like I, I want to I, I love to learn. You know this. It, it, it's wonderful. But once once my worth is attached to that, I'm I'm as good as dead. Well, I won't go into There's others uh, we could talk about. We talk about slander and triangulation and sensuality. They're all in that Genesis 3 passage. But you get the idea. As the sorcerers have all sorts of ways. And the incredible thing is, is that it, it's all a part of us. This is all stuff we deal with in our fallen nature. These are all, these are all sins that we really struggle with. And so, yeah, we're, we're absolutely vulnerable to the sorcerers in and of ourselves. So one of the things God does is he, he, he teaches us how to spot a sorcerer. He says, this is what they do, this is how they act, this is how they speak, and so on. And the Bible is just full of data about that. But there's another way, there's a, there's a, there's a, another way that God provides for His people and protects them. And that is He causes us to savor, just savor the straight path of the Lord. Look at verse 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? (laughs) Here's the really good news. We're having... This isn't what I was. Gonna, we're having babies right now in the church. Like right now, we're have we're babies, and we used to have this thing where uh, at, at, at my the, the last church that I pastored, where we made all the dads the first Sunday they came with the baby, they had the Lion King, the baby in front of everybody, you know, sort of like here's my child, superior to all others, you know. And I just remember the the looks in these dads' eyes was just like yes. You know, I don't know what you do if you adopt like a twelve-year-old. I, I don't know how you Lion King a twelve-year-old. You know, I'm just thinking about you guys. Yeah, uh, but you have got to figure it out. I mean, uh, you might need help. But I just remember that. Uh, I just remember the pride in these men's eyes. You know, as they're here. This is friends. I hope this comes through because that's what I feel right now as I tell you about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and and that is it's. It's straight. That's the good news. The path of the Lord is straight. Don't bury the lead with the sorcerer. Yeah, yeah, they're a problem. They really are. But the the, the root of all of this is Paul is saying to this man, how dare you turn my sweet, straightforward gospel into a maze of man-made religion? How dare you? I love my sweet, straightforward gospel. Do you realize that it would be easier for me to explain how a sinner can be saved from eternal judgment to eternal joy? It would be easier for me to explain that than it would be for me to explain how to get your driver's license renewed. God... Has done something unbelievable. He has made a straight path to himself through Jesus Christ. The mystery of the ages is now revealed to the saints, and God has laid all of his cards on the table. He has done what no other knowledge holder in the universe does. He has without charge, without tuition, without subscription said, "Here is deep, eternal, unchanging truth." He has created a straight way to him. And, and so so this when Paul says How dare you make crooked? Or will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? The the beauty is is that the path to the Lord is so sweet and straightforward. And it's straight because Jesus walked it. It's a path cleared by the calloused, underwashed, underkissed, underworshipped i incarnate feet of jesus christ this this, this path the straight path to god has been cleared by the feet of the incarnate jesus christ god of very god man of very man this is this is this is incredible news the sorcerer gets his power By making something straightforward into something Byzantine and bureaucratic. The sorcerer wants to put toll booths up on the highway right, and collect his due. The sorcerer is the money changer on the pathway to the Lord. But the good news is is that God has, with his own incarnate feet, worn a path, a straight path, between us and God, And that path defies all kinds of cronyism, all kinds of tyranny, all kinds of guilt manipulation. It's just a straight path. It's a straight path to the Lord. And in many respects, that path is straight because Jesus walked it. But you could also say the path is straight because Jesus is the path. He is the way. Jesus is the way to the Father. It's, it's, this, this, this is incredible. It's incredible. I mean, guys, we could spend hours walking through all of the ways religion has been abused by name your high priest types of any religion who consolidate information and say, if you want to get to heaven or whatever the thing in nirvana or whatever the thing is, you've got to listen to me and you've got to drop some money over here, and so on and so forth. And then along comes God himself, and he says, God, when the image of Jesus overturning the, the, tent, the tables, it, broaden that out, and say, what Jesus has done is, in the entire world, the whole thing, he said, no more lording it over people who are afraid of going to hell. No more lording it over people who want to know how to be happy. No more lording it over, no more extorting, no more creating a maze of man-made religion and then filling that maze full of dead ends and toll booths. Jesus is overturning the whole system and he's saying, no, this is, this is all I need. You pray to me. I will hear you. I will save you. I will be your mediator, your protector, your Lord, your Savior, the whole deal. The path is straight. It's just incredible. So, one of the ways that we spot a sorcerer is we know the straightness of the gospel. And we say, oh, hold on a second. Uh, There are no curves in this track. Um, You're making it harder than it needs to be. You're making it less concrete than it needs to be you're making it more complicated than it needs to be. So I just, I mean, just a a heart of praise this week, just started thinking about the simplicity of the gospel. And I just want to list a bunch of different ways that this simplicity and straightforwardness of the gospel has struck me this week. And the first is the necessity of the gospel. You must answer to God for your many sins. The monopoly of the gospel. There is no other way of salvation except through Jesus Christ. The simplicity of the gospel, believe on Him as your Savior and Lord and you will be saved. The individuality of the gospel, this is between you and God. The generosity of the gospel, eat and drink freely without payment. The objectivity of the gospel, this is true no matter who you are, what you're feeling or what others say about you. The liberty of the gospel, you are free from guilt and shame. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. The beneficiary of the gospel, it has been designed so that Jesus gets all the glory and no one can boast. The morality of the gospel, obey the word, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. The security of the gospel, once you're his, you're his, and no one can rip you out of his hand. The historicity of the gospel, this is all based on stuff that really happened, like the real life, the real death, and real resurrection of Jesus Christ. The comedy of the gospel, He chose what was weak and foolish to confound the wise. The testimony of the gospel, I was lost, but now I'm found. The joviality of the gospel, happy is the man whose sins are forgiven and whose trespasses the Lord does not count against him. And the victory of the gospel, why do the nations rage? The Lord laughs and holds them in derision. Kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. So God protects us from the sorcerers by teaching us how to spot them, but also teaching us just to love the beauty, the elegance of a straight path that Jesus Christ has made that essentially eliminates if we really know what we're if we really know what we've got, eliminates all of the congestion and pollution and corruption that has ruled the heart of man in the area of religion for thousands and thousands of years. You want to know why the world dramatically changed around 1580 or so? The straight path. The straight path. That's what, that's what changed. People rediscovered this anti-corruption, anti-lording it over. It's between you and God. You are free as the Son says you are free. That's what's happened. And the sorcerer types would love nothing more than to turn that sweet, straightforward gospel into a corn maze. And the third thing that God does is he he will send he will always send people, spiritual leaders, to stand up for the gospel. Paul. Stands up for the gospel. And you know why? Paul was trapped. Let's think about this. God, this beautiful story writer. Paul was trapped in a in a maze of self made religion, and then he was cured on a street called straight. Like Paul knows about the maze. And he loves the straight path. So God has raised up a man who loves the straight path. And God has raised up a man who says, I will not, I will not stand idly by while some sorcerer type tries to pull someone away from the faith. And he says in verse 11, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, midst and darkness, fell upon him and went about seeking people to lead him. And he went, went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Part of turning people to the faith is turning away the sorcerers. Part of loving the gospel is hating the perversion of the gospel. And so God has raised up leaders to be like watchdogs for the church. And he always will. You know, I was thinking about what makes a good watchdog. Well, good watchdogs don't bark at everything, right? I was thinking about this from a, a question of pastoral pulpit ministry. It's like, you know, if, 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 if every sermon is barking at something, eventually the owner's like, well, you know, we love the dog, but he's not much of a watchdog. He, he just thinks everything's a threat. But good watchdogs do bark. God has designed His church to have people who know and accept the responsibility of calling out the sorcerers. In Titus 1, verse 5, Paul says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. And then in the next several verses, he just kind of gives a character description of what elders should be. And the final character description is verse 9. It says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what, the Lord, what they ought not to teach. So yeah, there are sorcerers in the world. They are a real threat, but God has it covered. He has given us everything we need to know to spot them. He's given us this incredibly straightforward gospel that defies all of this corruption and deceit. And he's even given us and will always give us leaders who say, no, no, not okay. All of this is because God loves you. He loves you and he's going to protect you and care for you because that's what the gospel is. He has done all the work to make it possible for you and him to be in relationship together. He has cleared the path himself. And it's crazy to realize that Jesus clearing this path, the path led to the cross. He walked to the cross. That's the path. And that's, that's how he got to us and that's how we get to him. Is by understanding this simple gospel that Jesus Christ is God, that he came to earth, lived a perfect life, put himself on the cross as a payment for our sins and purchased those who would believe in him for eternal joy in heaven forever. That's the simple, straightforward gospel. And I'm proud to Lion King it to you this morning and say, that's my gospel. That's like that, your gospel as well. To introduce communion today, I want to read to you again from Come and Welcome to Jesus. The author writes, This table is set for you as a means of grace. God intends to strengthen you, not only in terms of your endurance, but also in your wits. The serpent, it says, was craftier than all the other creatures. And the Lord teaches us to keep our innocence, but to grow in our wisdom. Be wise as serpents, he says. The table is here to help you, to help equip you in growing up in that wisdom. Know that Satan tempts you in one direction, in one sin, in order to tempt you in another. He is the master of misdirection. He tempts you to sin against the law at some point, and you fall for it, so much the better. But the real game is to get you to sin against the gospel. How could a true Christian have thoughts like this in his heart? Even if they were, even if they were only there for a moment. In other words, he tempts you in order that you may use the fact that he has tempted you against you. He suggests the first thing in order that he may suggest the second. The broken body is here, and the spilt blood is here, and they are the only appropriate answer to all of this. Whether it is the first temptation, to lust, to anger, to avarice, or the second, to self-doubt, to melancholy, to morbid introspection, what we have here on this table is the only answer that suffices. I may be a poor Christian, but this body here says that I am one. I may have stumbled and fallen just last week, but blood was, out, was shed outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago so that this wine would be sitting here for me today and anybody else just like me. And for all those who fear that such freedom and grace may lead to some to abuse it, the reply is, let them go. We know that grace can do far more damage to sin than sin can do to grace. And isn't that the point? Lord God, we pray as we come and partake of this table that you would keep Jesus...